Well, when, when I was um, asked, to, I think, to step in, wasn't it, because uh, it was a rearrangement of speakers, um, I thought, let's, uh, let's go to Romans, but instead of going to the first bit of Romans, which we're probably very familiar with, and you hear lots of talks in the first half of Romans, um, why don't we go to the end of Romans? And uh, so what I want to do is, is look at the last three chapters of the book of Romans, and I think there's a, a kind of common theme there in the sense that it's, I think it's all about church and how we live together in church. Uh, I think um, Romans chapter 14, Paul is going to give us some very good advice as to how we should uh, live together in the body of Christ, in the local church. And then in chapter 15, uh, he sets some priorities. What are the priorities of a, of a church, of a local church, of a body of uh, believers. And then in chapter 16, uh, we actually look through a window into the church at Rome. And when you look through a window, you often catch a glimpse of your own reflection, don't you? So that's where we're going in these three talks. Uh, there are some discussion questions, but we're not going to have a discussion time, I don't think. We'll take those home with you and uh, use them to talk about it over lunch if you want to, or use them in a Bible study group if, you, if they're useful. So we're going to start with Romans chapter 14, which is quite a complicated chapter. Uh, it, it's difficult to, uh, to understand at the first reading exactly how this relates to us today. Um, I think it was in 1983, there was a book published called The Religious Factor in Australian Life by a guy called Gary Boomer. And uh, he was, in that book, he, he analyzed uh, the results of an extensive values survey that was carried out throughout Australia. One part of the survey dealt with tolerance. By asking people about their attitudes to various undesirable groups. So people were asked, would you object to your next door neighbor being, remember this is back in 1983, quite a long time ago, would you object to your next door neighbor being people with criminal records, people of a different race, students, that's a bit of a challenge, isn't it, having students, <laughs> left-wing extremists, I've got to be careful here because this is a polling booth, so I'm not going to get political, um, never married mothers, heavy drinkers, people with large families, right-wing extremists, emotionally unstable people, Members of minority religious sects or cults, immigrants, foreign workers, unemployed persons, aborigines, homosexuals. And the answers were analyzed according to um, various social and religious groupings. It wasn't just a religious survey, but there was a religious grouping. And um, in the religious category, there were five groupings. Now, this was back in 1983, and it sounds a little bit dated, but these were the five groups. Roman Catholic, Anglican, and then the rest of us were all kind of lumped together, Presbyterian Methodist Uniting, <laughs> PMU, Presbyterian Methodist Uniting, and then there was a group called the right-wing Protestants, which I, I think probably were the what they think of as fundamentalists, the Bible-believing evangelical Christians. 
right-wing Protestants. And then there was another group, no religion. And guess what? The hardline fundamentalist, Bible-bashing, right-wing Protestants turned out to be the most tolerant group by a significant margin. Uh, and those with no religion at all came last by a significant margin. <laughs> what a surprise. But not when you read what Paul has to say here in Romans chapter 14 and 15, particularly chapter 14. See, look, listen to what he says. I'm going to go a little bit into, into chapter 15. Look at what he says in verse 2 of chapter 15. He says, each of us should please our neighbor for their good to build them up. Now, of course, that's directed uh, primarily to the church, but it, it, it has something to say to society as well, I think. I mean, how do we handle our differences? How do we handle, uh, when we disagree with one another, how do we handle, how do we disagree without being disagreeable? How do we live together in a, a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural society and Paul wants to show us here how the, the gospel actually is the answer to that question. See, we're used to being told that we're the problem, aren't we? You're hearing that more and more these days. As Bible-believing Christians, we're often made to feel that we are the problem. But actually, we're the solution to the problem. Uh, at least that's what Paul is saying here. So let's take a look at what he has to say. I mean, what precisely is the problem here in, uh, in Rome? It, it's the Jew-Gentile problem. That's not our problem uh, in Tasmania, but that was the problem then. It was a huge problem. That's the way the world was divided then, Jew and non-Jew. Uh, but it's the very question, I think, which, which does occupy our minds today. How, how do people of different races and cultures and religions live together in peace? You see, in the church in Rome, this problem surfaced in the matter of feast days and food laws. Paul's writing to a bunch of people whose racial and cultural identity was based on abstaining or not abstaining from certain foods, observing or not observing special days. Uh, for the Jews, the food laws and feast days were what separated them from the Gentiles. That's what gave them their distinctive identity as God's people. It's what distinguished them from all the other nations in the world. It was their cultural identity. So the issue Paul's addressing here in the church in Rome is the same kind of issue that we face today in, in Australia. How do people with different cultural backgrounds live together in peace and harmony? And as we'll see, Paul's answer to that problem is, is radically different, radically different to the world's answer to that problem. See, the world wants to say that everyone's position is equally valid. They don't really believe that, and they don't act as if that's the case, but they, they want to say that. They pride themselves on their tolerance. And uh, the, the, the world wants to say, well, no one has a monopoly of the truth, so just let's live and, let's live and let live. Why don't we? Tolerance is the answer as far as the world is concerned. We want a tolerant society. But that's not what Paul says. You notice in this chapter he distinguishes between what he calls the weak and the strong. And he is particularly speaking in chapter 14 to the strong about their responsibilities to the weak. See, these, these people who want to hang on to their Jewishness as expressed in the, um, in the food laws and the feast days of the Old Testament, 
They've got strong convictions. They argue their case forcibly, but they're weak. As far as Paul is concerned, they are weak in the faith. They've got strong opinions, strong convictions, and they'll foist those opinions on everybody else, but they're weak in their grasp of the gospel. They haven't fully grasped the implications of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And so he says three things. These are the three points. Uh, first of all, speaking to the strong, he says to the strong, and by strong he means those who have understood the gospel and grasped it in all its grace. To the strong, he says, be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. Look at verse 13 of chapter 14. See what he says there? Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Notice he reminds them that they are brothers and sisters. We need to see that one of the most um, frequent uh, metaphor or, or description of the local church in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, we think about the, the temple, we think about the, uh, the body, we think about the bride. There are lots of metaphors that, that are used to describe the church in the New Testament, but the most frequent one goes right under the radar because it's so obvious we don't see it. It's family. Paul is always addressing these people as brothers and sisters in Christ. He's reminding them that, you see, church is a family. It's not a debating chamber. But we've, we, we, we've turned it into a debating chamber, I think. Some of the churches I've been in. <laughs> arguing and disputing with one another about things that really don't matter in the, in the end. Secondary issues. Remember the Monty Python uh, skits about the Spanish Inquisition? <laughs> well, sometimes church is like that, isn't it? In instead of being welcomed, you're interrogated. I was in a church recently, and before I could sit down, people wanted to know if I'd been baptized by total immersion, if I spoke in tongues. <laughs> I felt as if I was being spiritually frisked. Have you been in, a, have you been in churches like that? <laughs> I was met with a barrage of questions about all sorts of issues which had nothing to do with the gospel. See, church isn't meant to be like that. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. Accept the one who is, whose faith is weak. They might have thought, I, 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 if they thought my faith was weak because I didn't speak in tongues or because I hadn't been baptized by total immersion, although I have, if they thought that about me, they, they shouldn't have raised it with me anyway. They should have just accepted me for who I am. As a Christian, as a believer, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters, it says in verse 1. And then in verse 7 of chapter 15, accept one another, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. You see, that's what church is meant to be like. You don't pull up the drawbridge, you put out the welcome mat, don't you? That's how it should be. But all too often people come in amongst us and instead of feeling accepted, they feel judged and bullied and forced to comply with our cultural taboos. That's the kind of thing that was happening in Rome. That's what Paul is addressing here. And it's happening today, isn't it? And so the key word in this passage is that word accept one another. Accept 
It's a strong word. It means literally, open your arms, open your circle, make room in your life for other people who see things differently than you do. Don't brush them off. Don't dismiss them because they don't dot every I and cross every T that you think ought to be dotted and crossed. <laughs> don't marginalize them. Embrace them just as you yourselves have been embraced by Christ. Now, now let me say, this is, this is exactly the opposite of what the world wants us to do. Acceptance isn't tolerance. It's not another word for tolerance. See, the world says, well, let's just live and let live. I won't interfere with you as long as you don't interfere with me. Isn't that what they say? I won't criticize your narrow-minded, bigoted, legalistic beliefs, Israel Falah, as long as you keep them to yourself. As long as you don't try to stop me from living the way I want to. Isn't it amazing with the Israel Falah thing? All those rugby players who are guilty of domestic violence and gross indecency, and nobody bats an eyelid. And this clean-living Christian man quotes the Bible, and all hell breaks loose, even though they don't believe in hell. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? See, that's, that's the tolerance that the world is talking about. But it's not what Paul's talking about. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong, he says, ought to bear. Now, it's, you've probably got in your translation, bear with the failings of the weak, but the, the preposition isn't there in the Greek. There's a very big difference between bearing with something and bearing something, isn't there? He's not saying just put up. We who are strong should put up with the weak. He's not saying that. That's a bad translation. He's not talking about putting up. He's talking about lifting up. We who are strong ought to get beneath the burden and shoulder it. We should, I am my brother's keeper. We should take responsibility to help our weak brother carry that burden. That's what he's saying. It's the same as what he says in Galatians when he says, bear one another's burdens. Not bear with one another, but bear one another's burdens. Put your shoulder underneath that burden and help to carry it. And that's how we fulfill the law of Christ, which is love. See, that's, that's not tolerance, it's love. It's not live and let live. It's not I won't bother you if you don't bother me. You do worry about those who haven't properly grasped the gospel. You do want them to grow in their faith. You don't want to put any stumbling block in their way. You don't want to lord it over their consciences. You want them to see for themselves. And so, you go out of your way to do that. You, 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 you let other people's sensitivities affect you. You're not like a, uh, a bull in a china shop insisting on your view because it's right, even if it is right. You don't say, well, that brother has an oversensitive conscience. You ought to know better. That's his problem. No, it's your problem. It's your problem. You are your brother's keeper. See what he says in verse 15? If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. 
do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Well, you say, well, they're just oversensitive conscience. I mean, they were, they're still stuck in the Old Testament. Uh, we can eat anything we want nowadays. No, no, don't talk like that. They're weak. They haven't properly grasped things. Don't destroy that person by your liberty. There's an illustration uh, I came across when I was thinking about this. A high school girl in the States who had been raised in a very strict church was taught that it was a sin for a woman to wear makeup. Now, it's not a sin for a woman to wear makeup. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. In some of our church culture, we might think it is. But if you think that, you're weak. <laughs> you're not strong. You think you're strong, taking a stand on it, you're weak. Because you're adding to the gospel something that's not required. Anyway, that's the kind of background that this girl had. She was taught that it was a sin for a woman to wear makeup. But peer pressure at school from other Christian kids raised in other church families led her to go against her conscience. And so she began to put on makeup after leaving home in the morning and wiping it off again before getting home in the afternoon. Now I say again, nowhere does the Bible forbid makeup. But you see what's happening? She was violating her conscience. She was choosing popularity over faithfulness to Jesus. Uh, as a result, she soon found herself more and more open to real violations of God's will in the area of sexuality. And she stumbled. She stumbled because of her Christian friends who mocked her scruples. Even though she was wrong, even though she was weak in her understanding, they mocked her. Instead of building her up, they tripped her up. Do you see? The most damaging thing you can do to a baby believer is to bully him or her to go against their conscience. Don't do that, says Paul. Don't use your liberty to destroy someone for whom Christ died. To pressurize someone just to fit in to the way you do things. To pressurize someone to behave in a way that they think is wrong is to destroy the work of God. So be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. Verse 19, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. That's how we should do church together, isn't it? My wife, Ruth, um, she, loves, <laughs> she loves to watch um, the Tour de France. Uh, and it's on really in the early hours of the morning, isn't it, you know? Um, and she lies there in bed. She, usually she goes to bed early. Uh, and I usually go to bed quite late. But uh, when, I, by the time I, I'm, I, I, when the Tour de France is on, I come to bed and she's there wide awake watching. And I say, what, what, why do you, you know, what do you see? What do you see in this? She said, no, oh, it's the Pyrenees. I said, whose Pyrenees are you talking about? <laughs> um, but she, she likes the scenery. She loves the Alps and all that stuff, you know? But so I've, I've had to lie there. Uh, um, try to work out what the Tour de France is all about. I know anything about it. I always thought of cycling as something that you did as an individual, but it's a kind of team sport, really, isn't it? And, uh, and it's quite complicated, and I still don't think I understand it properly. But there are certain tactics that they employ to win the race. So um, after she won the gold medal at the, I think it was the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games, Kathy Watt thanked her teammate Louise O'Neill for helping her win the race. O'Neill was sent out as the bunny in the race. Do you know what that is? Yeah, to set the pace. Um, 
she was sent out uh, hard and early as a tactic to help the uh, to, to tire out the other riders. So while Cathy paced herself and won the medal, Louise had every right to go for the medal herself, but she put the Australian squad first and deliberately ran a race that she knew she'd never keep up with. She forewent her own rights to help a teammate win the race. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That's what the strong owe to the weak. We're all on the same team, Team Jesus. And there are times when we need to forego our own rights and privileges and preferences to help each other on. So to the strong, Paul says, be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. And to the weak, he says, focus, this is the second point, to the strong, be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. And to the weak, he says, focus on the eternals, not the externals. Look at verse 17 of chapter 14. The kingdom of God, he says, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Some years ago, um, Matthias Media brought out a Christmas card with that verse on it. And the caption read, Good News for Turkeys. <laughs> what a great title for a Christmas talk. I actually used it as a Christmas talk. Good News for Turkeys. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. Tell that to Coles and Woolies. Why don't you? It's not about how much food you can shovel into your stomach or whether that food is kosher or not. It's about Jesus setting up his kingdom of righteousness, peace and joy in our hearts. It's about what God is doing in your life through Jesus, not what you're putting in your stomach or not putting in your stomach. You see, this isn't about whether you eat vegetables or meat or anything like that. Paul isn't saying that uh, vegans who, or vegetarians are weak Christians. That's not what it's about at all. He's talking about the dietary rules of the Old Testament. In Leviticus, there's all sorts of uh, rules about what you should eat and, would, and shouldn't eat. But it's all about cleanness, cleanliness. And, and, and what, what Paul is saying here is this. It's Jesus who actually makes us clean. See, those, those dietary laws in the Old Testament, this long list of clean and unclean foods in Leviticus, was to drill into God's people in the Old Testament that principle that you can't just go in before a holy God without being cleansed. <laughs> but you see, the whole point is that it's Christ who makes us clean, isn't it? His blood has washed away our sin. His sacrifice has opened up the way for us to enter into the holy place. We are accepted in the beloved. God sees us in Christ. He's not interested in what you had for breakfast. His perfect obedience and blood hide all our transgressions from view. That's the gospel. And see, these, their faith was weak because they hadn't properly understood that. They hadn't grasped what Paul has been teaching all the way through the book of Romans. That we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, and not by anything that we do. Not by anything that we are, not anything that we can be. That word alone is important. By faith alone, 
in Christ alone. That's the gospel. And that's what will enable us to live together in peace and harmony, not only in our own local church, but across the denominations, the different tribes of Christians in Tasmania. It's being clear about, crystal clear about the gospel, about the things that are necessary to salvation. Those are non-negotiable. If someone comes and preaches any other gospel than the gospel that you have received, let him be accursed, Paul says. But if they come preaching the gospel of Christ, faith alone in Christ alone, then it doesn't matter what tribe they come from, it doesn't matter what motives they have, even if they're doing it out of envy, Paul says in Philippians 1, I rejoice. It's, it's, it's the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, that makes us pleasing to God. Not what we eat and drink, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now if you've grasped that, uh, if you know you're accepted in Christ, then, then you, you will accept those for whom Christ has died, won't you? So focus then on these things, the eternals, the things that are necessary to salvation. There'll be all sorts of surprises when you get to heaven. You know, all our arguments now about who's right about baptism and speaking in tongues and church government. I don't think, I think we probably won't even bother to talk about that when we get to heaven, will we? Focus on the eternals, not the externals. See, the gospel must always take precedence over our cultural preference. I love the fact that uh, in the Presbyterian church, the only requirement for membership is a credible profession of faith. Now, we do have a confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is pretty detailed. But to join a Presbyterian church, you don't even have to know that that exists. You simply have to have a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It mustn't be harder to become a member of our church than it is to get into heaven. But sometimes it is. We add to the gospel our cultural preferences. There's a funny story about um, a bunch of tourists walking around a town in the highlands of Scotland and they're accosted by an elder of the Kirk, an elder of the Presbyterian Church, which is the national church in Scotland. He said, you shouldn't be walking around. I can't do a Scottish accent, sorry. You shouldn't be walking around like this on the Sabbath, he said. But they said, well, well didn't Jesus walk around on the Sabbath? Ah, he did, but he wouldn't get away with it around here. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus himself wouldn't get into some of our churches, would he? It, 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 it's kind of funny, but it's sad. It's scandalous, in fact. Scandalous. I've just retired. I was in Brisbane for the last five years, in, in, uh, right in the s center of the city, and we saw quite a lot of growth. We have people from all kinds of backgrounds, Africans, Asians, Europeans, Americans, Baptists, Presbyterians, Anglicans. Uh, we have different views of the millennium and the mode of baptism, church government. We have different tastes in music. We dress differently. We speak different languages. There are so many disputable matters in church life, aren't there? So many issues that we can agree to disagree on without being disagreeable. Homeschooling, creation science, parenting, 
and a multitude of other things. But listen to what Paul says. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. I think it was St. Augustine who first said this, although others have repeated it over the years, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. That pretty much sums up, I think, what Paul is saying here. The gospel must take precedence over our cultural preferences, whatever they may be. So how do we do it? How do we live together? How do we live this out? Be a stepping stone and not a stumbling block, he says. Focus on the eternals, not the externals. And lastly, model yourself on Jesus. Look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 15. We who are strong, he says, ought to bear, not bear with, but bear the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, that the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. The world's answer to multiculturalism is broad-mindedness. Paul's answer is Christ-mindedness. Don't be narrow-minded. Don't be broad-minded. Be Christ-minded. How different the mind of Christ is to the way the world thinks. The world says, I won't criticize you if you let me alone to live as I please. But Christ-mindedness is the opposite of that. He won't let us alone to live as we please. I won't criticize you if you don't criticize me, but I will criticize you if you're a weaker brother. But I'll speak the truth to you in love because I want you to be strong. I won't judge you. And I'll change my life and I'll make sacrifices so that we can be friends. I won't write you off. I'll forego my freedoms to fit in with what's best for you. To build you up in the faith. Isn't that what Christ has done for us? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, says Paul. Even Christ didn't please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Think of, think of what Jesus has done for you. He died for you, which is about the most insulting thing he could ever have done for you. I wonder if you've ever thought about it like that. What an insult. That I needed Jesus to die for me. I thought I was better than that. See, you and I are so screwed up. You and I are so hopelessly lost. You and I are so weak that nothing less than the death of Jesus can save us. What an insult. That's why the, the cross is a stumbling block to people. Because he's telling us that we are hopelessly lost sinners. See, sometimes the, the cross is preached by, and I've heard it preached like this, oh, you know, God loves you so much that Jesus died for you. You must be worth a lot for Jesus to come and die for you. No, you're not. You're scumbags. <laughs> we're sinners. It isn't just that we just do the wrong thing now and again. We're sinners through and through. We sin because we are sinners by nature. And yet God in, in Christ came 
to take our sin upon himself. To shoulder that. Our weakness, our failure. Our guilt. Our ugliness. <laughs> he was made sin. <laughs> it was all dumped on him. For us. He who knew no sin. <laughs> he certainly put himself out for us, didn't he? He could have stayed. It was not robbery for him to claim equality with God. He could have stayed in the glory of heaven, in the fellowship of the Trinity. He could have stayed there. But he humbled himself and made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was obedient even unto death, even the death of the cross. See, he's saying to us, see how, how, see how I have made room for you in the life of God. In my incarnation, I lost my glory and my invulnerability. I put myself out. I became killable <laughs> to make room for you so that you could come into the life of God. What did Jesus do to make room for us? Did he sacrifice anything? He sacrificed everything. And so Paul prays there in verses 5 to 7 um, in, of chapter 15. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards one another that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Let's pray. Lord, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the ointment that runs down Aaron's beard. It's like the dew that falls on Mount Hermon. It's there that the Lord commands the blessing of life forevermore. When brothers dwell together in unity. Well, we don't, see, we don't see many people being brought out of darkness into life in our churches. Very few conversions. It's very rare that someone actually is born again, it seems. And Lord, we have to confess that maybe one of those reasons for that is because we've grieved your spirit just by the way we insist on doing things our own way. And not looking out for those who are new to the faith or on a journey towards faith. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for these sins of judgmentalism and superiority. Lord, we pray that you'd humble us to understand that we're all in the same boat. That we're all equal before the cross equally in need of your grace and your forgiveness. Unite our hearts, Lord, in Christian love for one another, we pray. As the world grows more and more hostile towards real Christians, we pray, Lord, that we who are real Christians might grow more loving and accepting of one another so that we can stand together in these days that lie ahead for the defense and confirmation of the gospel and not be scattered and divided as Satan would love us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.